speculation had become crazy. Once you swallow the contents of this bottle, you have enormous trouble. You just turn this one dial. The most powerful nootropic I've ever taken. Owning a share in American industry is like owning a share in the future of our nation. Making it till you make it. Now is the time to buy. And then all of a sudden you change the world. Go mortgage your house and buy Bitcoin with it. Doing what you want to do in life is like being on vacation every single day. Welcome back to Griftonomics. DeFi, short for decentralized finance, has been a popular buzzword of late, and you might have had a friend or family member tell you about this hot new technology that can make you massive returns each week. At its peak, the DeFi ecosystem has come close to a reported $100 billion invested in it. But what really is DeFi, and is it everything it's cracked up to be? In recent months, the industry has suffered from hacks, market crashes, and increased regulatory attention. Is this the future of finance or just an elaborate get-rich-quick scheme on a course for disaster? To help us explore the wild world of DeFi, we're joined by Bennett Tomlin, data scientist, consultant, and co-host of the popular podcast, Crypto Critics Corner. Thanks for joining us, Bennett. Glad to be here. So just to start, um, would you mind introducing yourself and just giving a brief history of your involvement with DeFi and probably crypto as well, more broadly? Sure. Uh, so... Back in 2017, when I was in my senior year of college, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do after I graduated. Mm -hmm. um, applied to a bunch of MD and PhD programs, got rejected from all the MD and PhD programs, felt a little bit unmoored and started um, doing some research and looking into things and trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I rediscovered cryptocurrency, which I hadn't really thought of since like 2014 <laughs> when I first read the white paper because I was a college student. I had no money or no need for censorship-resistant anti-state <laughs> money. And so crypto didn't often come up in the intervening right. years. But uh, at this point, we were starting to head into what was one of the larger bull runs in Bitcoin history. And the mainstream media and the mainstream tech media started to pick up cryptocurrencies again. So I um, reread the Bitcoin white paper, read the Ethereum white paper, and started trying to understand cryptocurrencies. Um, heading more into 2018 and onward, I have continued to write about and talk about cryptocurrencies and over time my role more and more has ended up as kind of a um, critic or skeptic because my particular talent seems to be finding the problems with these things <laughs> that's good you know, the world needs needs more skeptics so uh, i think there's definitely room for that um awesome so just getting back to DeFi, um there's a lot of definitions i've seen thrown around about it um but in your mind, what is the best definition for decentralized finance? Um, that is a challenging question because like all marketing terms, it ends up being kind of pushed and pulled to, means uh -huh. what, to mean what it needs to mean by the person using it. Um, what it's supposed to be in its best case is this idea that using these smart contracts, these little bits of code on these ledgers, uh, fancy database stored procedures, essentially, they can automate certain interactions and program certain interactions with these monies. Um, more often, frequently, at least in terms of quantity, the projects are thinly veiled cash grabs, with the vast majority just being um, either attempts to exploit 
the weakness of the regulatory state or just outright commit scams, frauds, and other things to profit those creating them. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it does really feel like a kind of a big tent term that I think a lot of stuff fits under, a lot like kind of the nebulous Web3 term, which we've talked about before on the podcast. But um, I guess, you know, these days I seem a lot more gravity towards the lending side of it. Um, but I know back in 2017 when I was kind of, I guess, on the periphery of, of crypto again, um, there was a movement towards decentralized exchanges or DEXs. Um, are they still a key part of the DeFi ecosystem? Uh, yes, and arguably even more important than they were then. Back mm. in 2017 and early 2018, many of the things advertising themselves as decentralized exchanges really weren't. Like okay. examples at the time would include like Ether Delta, which ended mm -hmm. up getting in trouble with the SEC, I think it was, because most of it wasn't really substantially decentralized in any way. All the order matching and a lot of that was handled by this server running under this guy's bed. Um <laughs> Things have gotten somewhat better since then. And decentralized exchanges are still important, led, of course, by Uniswap. Yeah. Um, and they are somewhat more decentralized now than they used to be. There's less likely to be a single server running under someone's bed that can shut down the whole thing. Now it's more like you shut down the many servers running at Infura, and most people don't know how to access it. Right, right, so right. So instead, instead of one server being the problem, it's many servers being the problem. Um, I see. And so, yeah, they're still important. There's still a lot of value locked in those. And the modal, they've come up to kind of represent those, this automated market maker, which is a bit of fancy math that makes it so they don't need to do like direct order matching and can kind of pull against the total liquidity, has allowed them to get a lot more usage of decentralized exchanges now than they were several years ago. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting because back then, I think decentralized exchanges mostly existed as a place that all of the the real crappy tokens, like the bottom of the barrel would get listed because no big exchange would list them. Um, but what I've seen now, if you look at something like Uniswap, is it seems to be actually at the center of this kind of DeFi movement in, in many senses. I, I, th I mean, it is at the center of many things because foundationally, many protocols need a price of the asset to work. Like mm. they're basing various calculations, various things in their protocol on the value of these assets used in a very general and broad sense. And so something like Uniswap existing, where anyone can list anything against anything else, makes it possible for you to get a price. Um, is that necessarily the highest quality price? Is it representative of the broadest liquidity? There's other complications there, but it gives you an easy way to get a price. And for people using the token, it gives you a way to exchange it. It lets you get the thing you probably actually want, which is a representation of a US dollar. I see. I see. Okay. That that's that's really interesting to know because I was trying to piece that together in my head. So in terms of the target market for DeFi, so we've talked about how it's supposedly about decentralizing control, putting it all, you know, in these systems that are able to run themselves. But who is the target market and how does that differ materially from traditional finance? Well, the supposed target market for decentralized finance and for crypto as a whole is people who need censorship resistance, where the banks, the government, whoever is 
intends to stop them from completing these types of transactions. Because by using the infrastructure of cryptocurrencies of these blockchains, it's almost inherently going to be less efficient, more expensive, and have these extra costs associated with it. And mm -hmm. so the times when it makes sense to pay that is when you are at risk of being censored. Now, sometimes censorship is unjust, is unfair, and we see it and perceive it as wrong. But the trade-off always ends up being is that often the things that we choose to censor as a society, there is some amount of reason for that. Right. We can debate the exact specifics of different cases of censorship or whatever, but broadly speaking, there is often value in being able to stop certain kinds of transactions and certain kinds of things, which leads into the actual kind of target market for decentralized finance, which is as kind of a regulatory arbitrage or regulatory dodge. You're mm. doing activities which would almost always be heavily regulated in the traditional finance system, whether it's extending these loans, taking these deposits, structuring these exchanges of what look a lot like securities. Um, those are all activities that come under a lot of scrutiny from a lot of different regulators. And so if you can find a way to do those activities and avoid the expensive and costly uh, regulatory oversight, then you are in a position where, where you can do the things you want to do without having to deal with what we as a society have decided are the necessary guardrails for that activity. And so the primary target for decentralized finance are those who want to participate in these financial activities while avoiding the scrutiny of regulators and structures like that that would try to place limits on these activities. Interesting. Yeah, I, the way I've thought about it in my head is that if, if traditional finance is, is one big casino, this is kind of like the shady back room that you have to, you know, go through the, the kitchen to get to. Um, but it also seems like that, you know, that the target market is actually retail investors is what I've seen a lot of, you know, people that, that aren't super rich seem to be on the DeFi train. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? And also, I, I've just noticed, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, but VCs, who are obviously big pushers of crypto these days, they seem to have actually gravitated more towards like the Web3 and the NFTs in, in my eyes. Like, are they are they also, you know, DeFi pushes or, you know? Yeah, so um, there's certainly an interest in retail. And I think that the interest in attracting retail is innately tied to the venture capitalists you're mentioning. So like if you go back to like mm. the ICO era of 2018, when right. a lot of what we now consider DeFi was initially being funded and built, the venture capitalists were very much investing and often with massive discounts to what was the first public price, like when these projects would ICO, sometimes mm -hmm. as high as like 90% for some of these prominent oh, yeah. VCs. And so you buy a token for $1 three months before it launches at $10. And you can see how that's a very attractive pitch for a venture capitalist. Um, and like the coin, the protocols will try to talk about how venture capitalists are on certain investing schedules like they are with equity. That sure, sure, sure keeps them honest and keeps them aligned. But then you'll have like uh, Chamath on the All In podcast with David Sachs and Jason mm -hmm. Kalkanis talking about how he's selling basically his claim against the unvested Solana he hasn't received yet. So he can't actually sell the Solana yet, but he can still sell the right to eventually get that Solana. And so that's what these venture capitalists and stuff will do. They don't have the tokens vested to them yet, but they'll sell the right to get those vested tokens to someone else so that they can still get this 
liquidity earlier after getting this kind of absurd discount. And so DeFi in wow. a huge and massive sense was pushed by these venture capitalists because they could get this massive discount. And then assuming there was enough public interest by the time the protocol launched, they were basically guaranteed returns. Now, the reason they're into Web3 and NFTs now is because that's a new and compelling narrative that's attracting a lot of interest from retail investors. Right. And so they can invest in early at a discount, either with like a SAFT or some other agreement for the tokens or by investing in the equity like 816Z did for Yuga Labs and mm -hmm. other things like that. And then they are able to market it, package it and create this really nebulous idea like Web3, which is really devoid of meaning. No right. one can give you a definition of Web3 that's going to like appropriately include the things that are supposed to be in Web3 and exclude the things that aren't. It's like not possible, but right. you can create a lot of think pieces and thought pieces and introductory guides and introductory videos all coming out of A16Z's media team to make it seem like there is a there there. And when you yeah. do that, then people are interested and you've got your exit liquidity again. Wow, that actually makes sense as DeFi being kind of a financial instrument where they can still extract wealth even though they aren't selling the, the underlying token that they're... Wow, okay, I didn't even think about that. Um, the other thing, and I, I hate to talk about it, but it's stable coins. Um, they seem to play a very big role in DeFi as well. Um, can you briefly explain, you know, for people that may not be familiar, like just what a stable coin is and why they're so important in the world of DeFi? Sure. And I think they're actually way more important than most people even recognize. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a few different types of stable coins. First of all, there's what's supposed to be the boring ones, which are the asset backed ones like Circle, Gemini, Dollar and Tether. Mm -hmm. For these, there's supposed to be a dollar in safe assets for every token on the blockchain. Historically, for at least the largest one of these, that has been a frequent lie. But their concept is simple. There's a dollar in an account. There's a token on the blockchain. They match up. Right. These are often used as like a simulation for a dollar. So if you want to trade on a decentralized exchange, you're likely trading against one of these. You gotcha. want to put dollars into some kind of protocol. This would be how you do it. Then there's the credit-based stable coins like DAI, where you put up $150 worth of, say, Ether. You get $100 worth of DAI, and this lets you basically lever your exposure to cryptocurrencies. So if you have a bunch of crypto assets and want to lever up to buy more crypto assets, you can use something like MakerDAO and DAI to facilitate that transaction. And then there's the algorithmic stable coins like Terra, which recently collapsed. And those are basically just a circular money game. They're a way to make money until they inevitably collapse. Now, the reason I say that these are more important than people even recognize in DeFi is because they are foundational to so many protocols. Uh -huh. So like almost every protocol will in, build in a stablecoin in some way or will rely on a protocol that relies on a stablecoin. So like I mentioned MakerDAO there, and which releases DAI, which is one of the largest quote unquote decentralized stablecoins. But like for at least a long time, a majority of DAI were issued against USDC, an asset-backed stablecoin, as its effective collateral. Huh. Now, the problem here becomes that, like, Circle could freeze every single one of those USDC with a single transaction broadcast to the chain. Yeah. And so that would break die and break any protocol that depends on die and the yeah and the more problematic part of this becomes like if there's 
a contentious fork in the ecosystem. Like if the huh. Ethereum community were trying to decide on some kind of issue that would likely result in two chains. Because whichever one circle says they're going to assign the value to the USDC tokens for is the chain that has to win. Because every protocol that depends on USDC or any protocol that depends on a protocol that depends on USDC has to follow that value in order to survive. And so we've Kind, the cryptocurrency ecosystem has placed these stablecoins in such a central position that they are now basically the final arbiters of what is and is not valid in these cases yeah, because they, so much like of a, the value depends on them. It's a foundational kind of layer of dominoes that mm -hmm. it sounds, yeah, and I can see how if one of them falls, a lot of the others might be exposed. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, Okay, more on that in a minute. Um, so in addition to the people that are taking out loans, which you talked about, people can put up, you know, uh, try and increase their wealth by basically taking out a loan and then gambling on crypto, making some more money. Um, there are people depositing quite a lot of money um, into this this ecosystem. Um, and the I think the benefit that they've been promoted is that they're receiving these massive amounts of interest in return, which I believe for, for people that aren't familiar with this is often called yield. Um, I've seen things like 20% interest rates promoted, um, which one, I'd love to just know, is that actually real? It can't be, I don't think. But also, where is that coming from? How do you, how are the, these protocols promising that? So, yeah. Uh, part of it is that there is such a demand for leverage and for borrowing against crypto assets. So if you're collateralizing a loan with Bitcoin and Ethereum, you likely want something like USDC as what you're actually getting as the loan value. And so if you're someone with USDC, you can basically make whatever those people are willing to pay to mm. lever up by lending out your USDC, for example. Um, these rates are way below 20%, to be clear. <laughs> Almost always, with with rare exceptions. You'll sometimes right. see on certain uh, exchanges that offer a lot of leverage when things start to get screwy, there'll be a brief like super high demand for stablecoins or whatever because people want to borrow to bet. Yeah. Um, when you see something like 20%, like you did for Anchor, there's almost always someone subsidizing it. So in the case of like uh, Terraform Labs, Terra Luna, they were advertising this uh, first 20, then 19% interest rate on Anchor. Uh -huh. And that was almost entirely coming from Terraform Labs, taking money they had made by uh, selling Terra, giving it to Anchor and allowing them to basically pay it out to incentivize more and more people to loan out Terra. And to do that, they had uh -huh. to buy Luna, get more Terra, and to try to basically accelerate the growth of the ecosystem they were willing to pay out this rate um, mm. this can become even more exaggerated than that with like justin sun offering to pay 40 percent annual percentage yield for people who are willing to loan his bs stablecoin usdd and poloniex his exchange um, <laughs> and in those cases it's almost always being subsidized uh there is so yeah and, and so like at the base rate there's a little bit for just demand from people trying to make certain trades trying sure, to lever yeah. up trying to short trying to make in a weird interest rate carrier, whatever. Then once you get beyond that and you start to see the really wild rates for lending, it's almost always because there's someone subsidizing it, someone paying to try to accelerate growth. Interesting. So it's like kind of a marketing expense for them um, in that, are these usually introductory offers? Like, do you only get the 20% for like a few months or are they trying well, to tell you and get it forever? Well, yeah, well, that's the, that's the tricky part or something. Um, Cause like, 
often for centralized lending services like uh, Celsius, BlockFi, those, there will be an initial rate they advertise for lending of certain mm. assets. But if you look at the terms, it's only paid on like the first 500 or or $1,000 you deposit and then the rate oh. drops way down um, okay. because the idea is they're willing to pay a little bit extra to the first people, to the people putting their initial dollars sure, in because yeah. once you're in, you're more likely to continue to deposit. And so that's good for them. Mm. Um, for something like Anchor, there was a kind of acknowledgement among the knowledgeable parts of the community that the rate was unsustainable. The belief was that it, they would be able to pay it for long enough that Terra and that the Terra system would become so important, so uh, fundamental to cryptocurrency as a whole that everyone would be incentivized to try to keep it going even mm. after the free money was no longer flowing. That's like the steel man version of what they're doing. But like when you look at um, Stable Gains, which was like a Y Combinator 2022 company, yeah. which yeah. put like $43 million worth of customer deposits straight into there, um, it certainly seems like there were many people who were not aware of the risks, who thought it was going to continue, who were not treating it with an appropriate degree of caution, skepticism, and uh, doubt about right. being able to earn 20% on their pseudo dollars. Yeah, well, I think it's also just perpetuated by a lot of, whether it's the media or, or you know, I, I did an episode uh, recently with... Mooncat, and we were talking about FinTalk, and you know there was this hilarious TikTok you've probably seen, where this guy's like, "Well, I'm just going to put this money into Anchor, the Anchor protocol, and that's how I'll pay back my my mortgage repayments, right?" Um, but when they do the, the the silly math, they're using the kind of face value interest rate. They're not, I guess, using what what they might actually receive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like, there's even worse kind. There's that type of distortion with like the yields and the interest rates. Then you'll have like protocols like um, Olympus Dow, which for a while was advertising oh, yeah. yields of over ten thousand percent, right? But it's not being paid in dollars or in any meaningful representation of value. It's just being paid in their own token. You're capturing <laughs> the new tokens they're issuing, and so you're not really getting any increase in value. You're just protecting your little share of the network as they're printing more and more of these. But if you went on TikTok, you saw people treating the numbers being advertised as yeah. like, if you invest a dollar now at the end of this year, you'll have however many dollars that ends up being That's crazy. After. Is, um, is that the one that Coindesk ran that puff piece about how it might is. be a Ponzi scheme, but what's wrong with Ponzi scheme? Yes, that would be the one. Um, <laughs> it, it's down like 92% since that article ran. Uh, <laughs> great, great journalism curious. there from from CoinDesk, a truly unbiased publication. Um, <laughs> so, uh, talking about CoinDesk and big players. Uh, so, who are the big players here? And I, I think it would be useful if you could just help explain. You talked a little bit about the different layers, but mm -hmm. you know, there's there's base layers, blockchains like Ethereum. There's then protocols which seem more of like a framework, like a Maker or a Uniswap, and then there's these more commercial services, which you referred to as centralized a second ago, but Celsius, BlockFi, these kind of things. Can you just maybe help paint the ecosystem and who the, the big players are? Sure. Um, so like, like you mentioned, at the foundational level for these is the actual blockchains and cryptocurrencies themselves. Um, these are 
fancy append-only ledgers shared between a bunch of computers all around the world with various rules about what you're allowed to do on them um, and how you're allowed to add to them. So these would be Ethereum, Solana, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, whatever. They're the various... Do you think uh, the most of DeFi, though, is happening on Ethereum? Yes. Yeah. yeah. By far. Um, and then on top of that, you there's a variety of smart contracts. There's the very simple ones that create like a new token itself, which are relatively short, relatively simple, and just define this asset that can be then transacted on this blockchain. Then you have the more complicated protocols like Maker, like Uniswap, like whatever that combine together more and more pieces of this logic and of these assets to allow you to do more complicated financial interactions and things like that. The more centralized ones like Celsius, BlockFi, Nexo are lending platforms, exchanges like FTX, Coinbase, Kraken, Bitfinex, stablecoins like Tether, USDC, Gemini, Paxos. These are businesses built mm. in the real world that interact in some way with cryptocurrency. Foundationally, they're still businesses and often look a lot like the cryptocurrency or the uh, traditional finance version of this same type of business, though often with less stringent know your customer and anti-money laundering rules for some right. reason. Um, but yeah, they're fundamentally just businesses staffed by people in the real world in some sense, whereas the other ones are more abstract and exist within this kind of alternative yeah. ecosystem it's so funny to me world. that people people refer or still use the kind of you know it's decentralized when they refer to something like a celsius or a BlockFi because they're entirely centralized companies with i'm assuming entirely centralized um control systems but even if you go like back a layer into the things like maker or uniswap like how decentralized are these really um yeah. It depends. It depends, and it depends on like how you generally interact with them. Um, so it's like let's look at Uniswap, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone can list any asset against any other asset. You can interact with any existing uh, pools or things like that on chain. But if you primarily use it through the Uniswap website, the web interface they provide, there's only mm. a certain list of tokens that are on like their approved list that you can trade through the website, uh -huh. uh, and there's. Other limitations like that, like I think for a while they were even IP rejecting certain countries and things like that. So there can be limits at that level. Um, speaking more of like at an infrastructure level, there's a company very important in the Ethereum world called Infura, mm -hmm. which runs the nodes that index a whole bunch of the blockchain and the data that's needed to actually interact with these protocols and they provide endpoints that popular wallets like metamask call by default um, and again many of the websites and front ends that these protocols make for their stuff will default to using things like that to pull in certain information or numbers when infura has gone down it often breaks many of these protocols in unexpected ways um, mm. It's possible to choose your own node, your own RPC provider, whatever in many of these wallets, but it's not necessarily easy, intuitive, or broadly done. And so uh, there's always this bit of challenge in like when, like clearly, clearly Infura is like this point of articulation. Um, and like, uh, I think there was even a case of them testing out a new like IP blocking feature that started blocking certain people from calling their endpoint and stuff. <laughs> and so that's clearly like a bit of centralization there. 
And like the response you'll get from people deep in the cryptocurrency ecosystem is that this is still decentralized. It's still possible. You can still run your own uh, node. You can still create your own RPC endpoint. You can still assign that in your wallet and you can still broadcast your transaction (laughs) to the miners and get it included. So nothing was really broken, but the transaction volume fell 95% during that period because most people couldn't get anything through. And so it's a little bit like, and then like at a more foundational level, like, I mentioned how I feel like at this point, stable coins have ended up in such a position where they can challenge a lot of the effective narratives of centralization. Right. And we regularly see both like circle and tether freeze tokens that are circulating on blockchains for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw back in 2017 when tether was hacked, they literally forced a fork of the omni layer they were on to try to freeze those tokens because they had such an economically dominant position that they were able to issue their own version of the software send it to all the exchanges who had to start running it because they needed to be able to accept tether deposits and send out tether withdrawals and suddenly the omni layers forked i don't I see no reason to believe that that's substantially different than kind of where Ethereum is in now. There would be mm. a lot of hand-wringing about, hand-wringing about it and a lot of intellectual debates on what it means to be decentralized and the practical realities of interacting in this world. But fundamentally, such a massive portion of the economic activity on chain is dominated by these centralized entities that they often have a sort of effective veto on a lot of things or the ability to manipulate a lot of this. And... I think the reason why it's easy for a lot of cryptocurrency advocates to avoid that truth at this point is because there haven't been many clear-cut cases of them exercising that power yet. Yeah. Like, most often, USDC tokens don't get frozen. Most often, they're allowed to just move around and act in this way. And so because of that, it is a useful fiction to continue believing that this is decentralized, especially when decentralization due to Hinman's statements for the SEC became fundamental to trying to argue that your thing is not a security. Mm, Um, And so when that's a requirement for you to be able to continue operating and avoid regulatory scrutiny, it is very useful to keep that going, whatever it requires. It's a very useful facade, but it is at the end of the day, nothing but a facade, I think is, is my take. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's true, at least to a point, right? Like there's, at this point, I think it would be very challenging for regulators or governments to fully stop something like the Bitcoin blockchain. I think there's many avenues they could do that would absolutely crater the value Mm -hmm. and make it much less appealing to people who want to use it. But like at a foundational level, running most of these blockchains just requires a few weirdos still willing to run the software and wait. And so like there is still a fundamental little bit of truth to the claims of censorship resistance, but when you want to use it in the way they want it to be used, almost always you end up bumping up against these things that make you realize that actually using it introduces many of these points of centralization that end up making it so it's no longer the way it's marketed. Oh, yeah. And that's going right back to the very foundational layer of the blockchain. But when you come forward and you look at some of these other layers that have been built on top of it, governments could absolutely take down something like Infura or they could say, hey, Google, stop listing MetaMask on the Chrome extension store. And they could pretty easily, I think, topple what we know as DeFi today if they if they really wanted to. Right. Oh, yes, I think absolutely. Like the 
the government still has a bunch of Bitcoin on their books that hasn't been auctioned off yet. Yeah. Sell that all, sell that off all at once, find an excuse to sell off any other crypto assets that have accumulated on your books. Do that like the same time you tell a bunch of these exchanges and banks that they have to stop interacting with cryptocurrency and then like watch as the liquidity dries up and a bunch of things will just start naturally breaking because they're poorly designed. You let that carry on for a while until the natural breakage is starting and then you start going after people who are violating the rules and you could crack down you could crank it down and you could make it much smaller mm -hmm. if you really wanted to if you really wanted to the question is whether that will happen or not yeah mm -hmm. um so speaking about a time that something did collapse just getting back to the reliance on stable coins there was recently a collapse of a coin called terra which also had something called luna i it's honestly quite a silly premise, but um, could you briefly explain what happened there and how it relates to, to DeFi? Yeah, so Terra and Luna, the system as a whole, were an example of what's called an algorithmic stablecoin. Um, effectively, Terra, the thing that's supposed to look like a dollar, was pseudo-collateralized by Luna, which is the governance token for the mm. Terra chain. You could take your Luna token and you could stake it. And if you staked your Luna token, you were supposed to receive your proportional share of the fees paid on the Terra chain. And this gotcha. was the value proposition for the Luna token. You mm -hmm. get your share of the fees and as such, Luna should have some amount of value. And once mm -hmm. you've convinced people that Luna should have some amount of value, it becomes possible to use it as kind of this pseudo collateral. And so you could take gotcha. a dollar worth of Luna and you could burn it and get one teradollar. And if you had a teradollar, you could burn it and get about $1 worth of Luna. And so that was fundamentally how Terra worked. They, It stayed quite small for a long time until mm -hmm. they realized that if you started paying people 20% to lend it out, you'll suddenly see a whole bunch of growth. And so Terraform <laughs> Labs started heavily subsidizing the anchor uh, yield the yield went up to 20%. The demand for Terra got way higher. And we started seeing like uh, the abracadabra degen box on Ethereum start like rehypothecating through that 10 times over to allow mm. people to leverage their exposure to the, to the subsidized 20% yield. And so as more and more people wanted to do that, demand for Terra went up, the Terra market cap went up until eventually people realized that Luna really only has this kind of self-referential claim to value. It yeah. only has value so long as people continue to want to use the chain and make these swaps and you earn your portion of the fees. And the thing is, these algorithmic stable coins are only meta-stable because they fundamentally rely on the continued belief in value of both components. As belief in Terra started to get shaken, as Terraform Labs withdrew their liquidity, we saw the pegs start to break. When the pegs started to break, more and more large players started to worry about the ramifications of that and started de-risking their positions. As they did this, more and more Terra was swapped back through the protocol for Luna. As this was happening, what happens is more and more Luna gets minted. As more and more Luna was minted onto the market, the price of Luna started to collapse because there was not sufficient demand for the new Luna that was being minted. This 
So then as faith was being lost in Terra, it caused a loss of faith in Luna because people saw the mint numbers go up and they saw the price start dropping, which caused more and more people to start to exit their Luna positions. Right. So as people were exiting in both sides at once because these assets are fundamentally linked with one as an effective derivative of the other, the system collapsed as algorithmic stablecoins almost always do. Right. Yeah. That's those kind of like those dominoes falling, right? And it, it mm -hmm. sounds like these algorithmic stable coins, their worth is based purely on there being steam behind this collective delusion, right? That they're yeah. kind of Yeah, they're 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 fundamentally a version of fiat. They're groups trying yeah. to create their own fiat currency by getting a sufficient number of people to believe that this thing is going to work. And Terra like really leaned into that by trying to get so big so fast and then by buying so much Bitcoin. They were kind mm -hmm. of effectively trying to hold a gun to the rest of crypto and say, if you let us collapse, we'll have to sell our billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And you all know that when Bitcoin starts to dump, everything starts to dump. So help us I out. I see. I and, see. Um, so that was their strategy, but it didn't really, didn't really work. Um, it, it, yeah, it didn't seem to. Do you, do you the think that there's going to be any? Enough. Do you think the industry have learned from that 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 example? Do you think? Because I saw that something called Terra 2.0, I think it was called, had had popped up. Like, do you think that there'll be any consequences for the people involved, or that the industry will maybe be like, whoa, maybe we should be a little bit more careful? I expect there'll be some amount of consequences. Um, mm. I've been covering this space for long enough that I don't expect very many consequences, uh, but it has certainly sparked a lot of attention. Um, but I don't know that it's sparked an appropriate amount of introspection because mm. like Sam Bankman Freed, everyone's favorite future altruist is uh, his hedge fund had invested in mm. Terra had been part of their post-secondary sale. His exchange, FTX, had listed Terra and sold right. it to a bunch of people. And then as soon as it collapsed, he decided to go on Twitter and talk about how he didn't understand what the big deal was because this system was transparently going to falter. <laughs> and he doesn't seem to see any contradiction in that. And Alameda Research is now one of like the three partners so far for Justin Sun's claimed algorithmic stablecoin USDT, which is offering a 40% yield and currently is not even actually an algorithmic stablecoin because you can go one way. You can burn TRX to get USDT, but there's no way to go the other way. They have not built it yet. You cannot actually exchange wow. the USDT for Tron yet. Like I, I went through all the smart contracts to check, and it's just not there. It's so they're straight it, on. It's a they're one straight way on to supporting. Like that, that. That's pretty, you know, indicative. The industry is straight on to building yet another thing. They're like twenty percent. Let's let, let's do forty percent and and make it one way. Like why not? Um, which I don't even know how that would work. But it, I guess in the, in the case, <laughs> I guess in the case of Sam Bankman Fried, like uh, he probably doesn't care right because he like he'll make money on the exchange fees and like yeah like what what incentives does he have to care <laughs> except for being a, a decent human being well yeah and, and that's the problem is there's not much unless you have a sufficiently powerful regulatory state or a society that cares enough to hold those types of individuals to account and i see no evidence to suggest we live in that regulatory state or that society and like and so sam 
Bankman-Fried feels no problem listing and selling these schemes that he believes are unsustainable because people are willing to pay for it. So why shouldn't he offer it? That's, uh, it, it's a very, you know, I think there's some people out there that have that as their view of the world. Like it's the free market, right? And, mm -hmm. but I, that's just shocking to me that you could sit by and watch lots of people lose a lot of money and, and make a profit off that. Yeah, it, um, it's fundamentally like in a moral stance, like that yeah. morality has no meaning and that it shouldn't affect my decision here. And like it's, uh, I, I think it's deeply, I think that type of philosophy is kind of foundational to a lot of crypto thinking and is the root uh -huh. of a lot of the problems we see is like the many participants in the crypto world are not inclined to think through the consequences, externalities, or other things of the decisions they're making. They are just providing a thing, and what that thing is used for, what that thing does, is of, is of little concern. Yeah, I, I think it's so true. And I think it's, it's unfortunately, I think, indicative of the just the kind of libertarian core beliefs that a lot of the people in that space have. But I think if you look at other uh, CEOs, leaders of these crypto exchanges, it seems like a pretty common belief system that they, they have. The other thing I've seen from, from these, these people um, like, you know, Sam or like uh, Jesse from Kraken is um, they're getting into political donations in a pretty big way. And I'm just interested in what your thought there is like, is it dangerous that this kind of amoral belief system is now donating millions, maybe billions of dollars to politicians? I think it's extraordinarily dangerous. Um, Jesse Powell, right, at yeah. the end of last year, announced who he was going to be donating to and, like, a list of who he did donate, which led to me writing an article entitled Crypto Money Advances Anti-Democracy Candidates, where I went through the list of people he had donated to and found all the ones who had tried to overturn the results of an election, effectively <laughs> support an insurrection. Then I went through and identified all the ones who were against things like gay marriage and the ones who were against things like a woman's right to choose. And a lot of the candidates that Jesse Powell were supporting have outright reprehensible beliefs and have like said extraordinarily bigoted things. When I wrote this article trying to point this out, one of the most uh, common responses was, well, yeah, but they support crypto or, well, yeah, but he donated to such and such other person. And I'm like, it, this isn't a balancing act like that. <laughs> you can't just say that it's okay. I donated to the person who's acting every day to destroy our democracy because they like my coin. That doesn't absolve you of the moral cost of supporting the person fundamentally trying to destroy democracy. And there's not a willingness to grapple with that. There's not a seriousness about the reality of the consequences of these actions. And like, and so seeing Sam Bankman-Fried start to plow millions of dollars into like primaries in deep blue states to support like specific candidates that are advancing what he wants to do is, I think, a very dangerous thing. And I think he, he said some absurd amount of money that he was planning on potentially giving between yeah. now and 2024. And like in terms of like political giving and political donations, it was a shocking number that like. And so that yeah. amount of money being brought to bear on these types of problems and advancing candidates who you're selecting primarily on this single litmus test without an apparent appreciation for the other issues that are going to matter here, I think could potentially deeply affect our state. And 
moreover, the larger that source of money becomes, the harder it becomes for uh, politicians to come out with meaningful restrictions because acting in a way that cuts off their access to that money potentially makes it harder for them to run their campaign and for them to advance. So just it existing as this pool of large money makes it harder yeah. for politicians or people interested in politics to do direct critiques. Yeah, this is why I, I, I honestly, I, I hate it when people try to make the argument that, well, cryptocurrency is just a technology. It, it is politically neutral. It has no bearing on that. Or people that maybe just are, are a little bit naive and don't understand that. But there's probably a lot of people out there who don't understand that their participating in cryptocurrency is in some ways putting billions of dollars in the hands of people who are then funding politicians who want to destroy their rights to be who they are. And that's just mind blowing to me. Like crypto is and, not politically neutral. And I think it's especially jarring in contrast to like the messages of cryptocurrency that like right. people should be free to be who they are and interact freely and do these things. And yet you're donating all of your money to this candidate who said that those people shouldn't exist, that their very existence is wrong and against God's vision for the world. And you see no tension between those ideas. And yeah. like we saw this a little bit with um, Brantley at True Names, at the Ethereum Names service. He had posted some, oh, yeah. Yeah, he posted some extraordinarily um, homophobic and transphobic comments and things like this. And he ended up resigning from the company after doing that. And a bunch of cryptocurrency people tried to make it as if he was a victim of cancel culture, as if this was <laughs> unfair for this company to do this. And like the really problematic aspect of this is that there were people who identified in those ways working for this company that Brantley was working at who, and, and knowing your coworker thinks that like your very existence is wrong is a challenging place to work in. Like, right. So his continued presence in the workplace, still being part of that company, if they had not talked to him and convinced him to leave, would have made it impossible or much more challenging for these other folks who, who if cryptocurrency wants to be successful, like the people who most benefit from it are going to be the people most censored, are going mm -hmm. to be the people most often pushed to the periphery of society, are going to be the people like sex workers who regularly get cut off from the banking system. And so by leaving folks like that in power, they end up pushing out the people who could most benefit if what they're saying is actually true. <laughs> I completely agree. It's terrifying. And, uh, you know, kind of getting back on topic now that we've discussed how crypto billionaires are going to destroy democracy, but, um, you know, lack of regulation seems to be why DeFi in many ways, I think, exists to the, the, the in the way that it does. Um, recently, there have been some big services that received fines. Um, I know Coinbase, for instance, pulled back a little on, on its lend, on offering a lending service. Um, you know, even though we just discussed how there's a lot of money, unfortunately, in the back pockets of politicians, can you just help us understand the latest and when it, where it is when it comes to regulation for DeFi? Yeah, there's been limited attempts at regulation so far, but over, I'd say, about the last 18 months or so, there's been a bit more activity. 
probably a little bit less than that, 14 months or so, we've seen a bit more activity and a bit more attention being paid to certain things. Mm. Um, this started with more serious attempts to regulate stable coins with like the uh, Digital Asset and Market Structure Investor Protection Act being proposed, or my favorite, the Stable Act being proposed, all mm. of which were effectively meant to kind of bring stable coins into kind of the banking regulatory framework where they probably always should have existed. Mm. Um, and so that's been a thing that's been happening. But again, none of these bills have passed. None of them have right, become a set right. of regulations anyone actually has to follow yet. <laughs> uh, more recently, we saw the Luminous Gillibrand bill in the Senate that works to regulate a whole bunch of cryptocurrency. But um, again, that seems pretty heavily focused on taxes and the... There's been a bit of controversy because like the way the carve outs are made as to what cryptocurrency assets need to register at the SEC and which ones are considered commodities seem kind of expressly shaped in some people's opinion to separate out Bitcoin and kind of choose oh, winners yeah. and losers, which again becomes striking when you look at like what percentage of Senator Loomis's donations have come in the form of Bitcoin. Um, she had laser eyes on her Twitter at some point. I she know. had very poorly done laser eyes on her Twitter, yes. <laughs> uh, and so, like, we've started to see some attempts at regulation, but, like, the SEC is still litigating their case against XRP. Um, <laughs> the, the clearest bad actors in the space who have a history of doing extraordinarily unethical things still exist. Yeah. Um, and so... I keep thinking that we are potentially moving towards some kind of regulatory framework that could hopefully help to minimize some of the harms that the cryptocurrency mm. industry has been causing. But I'm deeply skeptical because of some of the fundamental and structural issues with our government and with the way we handle these things, right? Um, getting any bill through the Senate is extraordinarily challenging. And that includes bills that can pass through reconciliation with no clear 50 vote block that's going to necessarily support any of these new regulatory bills through. And like, if the bill can't pass through reconciliation, it's decided that it needs the full 60 votes. There is no 60 vote block that will ever pass anything through the Senate at this point. Yeah. Or And like, even, and so like, you end up with, if you're, not able to pass a framework with clear bright lines and stuff like that, then the only way to regulate these things is effectively regulation by litigation, which involves having regulators who care enough to go litigate. Law 360 reported a couple days ago that a bunch of the SEC's attorneys are leaving because Gary Gensler and top leadership were pushing them to litigate cases instead of settle. Mm. They didn't want to. They were worried that they weren't going to win if it went to litigation and they wanted the easy win of settling. Right. And so even when you have leaders in some of these bureaucracies who are interested in trying to go after people, there's still often cultural and like career incentive issues that disincentivize the bureaucrats and the lawyers there to actually try to do that. Um, and so you and that fundamentally comes back to like the revolving door we've created between private industry and these bureaucracies. True. Many of the top leaders of them were very recently in private industry. And as soon as they leave, they go work for Binance US, right? And so because of that, they are disincentivized from taking actions that would make them unappealing in the private market after they leave. And so when there is regulatory action, it's something like the $18 million fine for the $5 billion raise of block one. We mm. look at it and you go, this really feels very disproportionate to the activities that are being described in this document. And so the overall, like, 
I think it is going to be extraordinarily challenging for any kind of bill to pass both the House and the Senate that is going to put reasonable limits on cryptocurrency um, and put it into a better regulatory framework. And so without that, I'm not convinced there's enough political will for regulators to do any kind of serious activity. And the longer it waits, the harder it becomes, right? Because if you have a bunch of new political candidates supported by crypto money in 2022, then Mm -hmm. it becomes even less likely that you end up with a bill with limits that are really going to contain it. And that compounds again in 2024, if you're able to get even more politicians in. And like, so the, the longer it, takes the harder it becomes and that was really fundamentally the damage done by like jay clinton in the trump administration between 2016 and 2020 right michael lewis talks about this a little bit in his book the fifth risk about the trump transition team is that their foundational goal was to effectively make many of these federal agencies ineffective and they effectively did that they gutted them they staffed them with people with no interest in enforcement no interest in ledgers in litigating and in doing so they gave many industries four years to become more entrenched, more funded, more connected, and made it much harder in the next time when these fundamentally political agencies that the regulators are, when the next team came in, they then had to work to rebuild missing information. And that is a very challenging task to do when everyone there is looking for their exit. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're defanged in many ways. I think the well, you've completely destroyed my my belief that regulators will do anything <laughs> about this problem. But um, and maybe that's just how it is. But um, in, in lack of with lack of regulation, do you think that what is the end of DeFi? Do you think DeFi will just continue kind of puttering along? Will it continue growing, or do you think we're due for some more implosions, a la Terra? I think there will continue to be a variety of implosions because many of these protocols are poorly designed, not really thought through, and designed as basically a money extraction game where the people creating them extract as much money as they can for as long as they can with them having the knowledge that it is doomed to collapse. Those will continue to collapse because that's what they're meant to do. Um, I expect DeFi will continue to exist. I, I keep being optimistic. I keep hoping that... I think that there are certain regulations which have that you could get pretty broad approval for, which would help in many ways reduce some of the risks, right? Bringing stablecoins into the banking framework makes sense. They're taking yeah. deposits and in many cases like Tether extending loans, they're participating in bank activities and you bring them into that framework, you now have supervision and you've also effectively guaranteed the money. So they're no longer like the same systemic risks potentially to the financial system more broadly. And so like something like that, you should be able to get approval for. Uh, The exchanges, Coinbase, FTX, since they're acting effectively as both broker dealers and as the exchanges doing the matching, they should be regulated like that. And we should have rules that dictate like what kind of surveillance information stuff we're getting on that. And I don't think that should be controversial. These are centralized Mm. businesses dealing in massive amounts of money. So they should be surveilled like massive businesses dealing in a whole bunch of money. And then like even more, um, and yeah, so like you, put some limits on the exchanges. Hopefully that starts to change some of the stuff they list and some of the bad behavior they do. Like the reported 70% wash trading on Gemini or the CFTC documented 99% wash trading for Litecoin on Coinbase, right? right? And those are the good actors. Those are the people who say they're regulated. <laughs> um, and so like you, 
limit the exchange's bad behavior. You keep the stable coins from having their systemic risk. And then you can um, go after the lending platforms, which we've already started to see for offering illegal securities, which is why mm -hmm. like Coinbase had to end their earn program, yeah. why Gemini had to end theirs, and why like BlockFi, Celsius, and Nexo can no longer really offer their products to U.S. persons is because they went after, they were pursued for effectively offering um, unregistered securities. And so like, I look at those and those seem like relatively common sense yeah. interventions, which are acting at the points like where the feds clearly could have jurisdiction, right? These are the businesses interacting with the money and touching the banking system. Yeah, like, there's no gray where, area. Yeah, that's it's where the like... feds should have their power. And so I'm, I hope, I hope that we're able to get a combination of regulators and politicians who make some of those common sense changes. Like, it shouldn't be possible for all these exchanges to be trading against their users. And like the <laughs> pseudo separation between the exchange owners and their hedge funds is stupid. Like, Sam Bankman-Fried shouldn't have been able to own both Alameda and FTX. Juan Carlo Davisini shouldn't be able to own both Bluebit Capital and Bitfinex. Like, uh, Arthur Hayes shouldn't have been able to run his prop trading Destin Bitmax. Like, it, it makes no sense to allow these individuals to actively trade against their users. And that should be a thing which, again, most of even the participants in the crypto market should be in favor of because they shouldn't want these hedge funds actively trading against them and knowing, like, their yeah. positioning information. Yeah, they only, it's, like... I don't see why anybody, whether you're a proponent or a skeptic of crypto, would be against um, that kind of common sense kind exactly, of regulation. Exactly. And like, and we recently saw one of the most recent important cases is like uh, the Department of Justice pursuing Nate Chastain of mm. OpenSea for his participation in an insider trading scheme because they're not pursuing him for like a Section 10b5 securities fraud violation like insider trading violations are normally under because they don't want to have to try to prove that the NFTs that he was insider trading effectively are security. So they're instead going after him using uh, wire fraud and money laundering statutes. Right. And so like, it's a, and so like, you do the common sense stuff, you put limits and guardrails on the entities that are touching the actual financial system. And we're very clearly the feds should have regulation. And then you use the existing statutes to aggressively pursue the bad actors and you've effectively mitigated a lot of the harms in crypto in a way that I think most honest crypto proponents would have a hard time criticizing, right? Mm -hmm. Like stable coins That's should true. have backing. Exchanges should follow rules and not trade against their users. Bad actors who are taking advantage of their followers and things like that should probably be pursued. And like you do those things and the resulting cryptocurrency ecosystem that remains looks a lot different than what we have today. I think that's great. I think uh, the you, you need somebody needs to put those ideas in the head of a of a politician. <laughs> but um, so, last question, you know, what we ask on this show is is whether it's a grift. I think we've we've definitely agreed on. I think you'd agree it's a grift. Um, but um, if you could just, in a kind of succinct way, kind of say like, who's making the money here, and and who are the losers? Yeah. So. I think that in cryptocurrency, there are people who truly believe the things they are saying and are actively trying to create the things that mm. they say they're trying to create. They actually do want to create tools to empower people. Whether or not the tools they create are good or effective at the things they're trying to do is a separate question we'll leave out for now. But I do think there are well-intentioned people who are not sure. trying to grift. I think there are my. I think they are a probably a minority of the people creating new projects and stuff like that. 
I think very often it is a grift where the people creating the project are trying to take advantage of regulator inaction, the quantity of money, and the ease with the ease and speed in which they can make it in order for them to benefit. And the individuals making money are won't really two groups. It's the groups who have inserted themselves as middlemen. It's CZ, it's Brian Armstrong, it's Sam Bankman-Fried, who are making mm -hmm. a percentage of every bad decision you make when you log on to their exchanges. Mm -hmm. And it's the people who are creating the things that you're making bad decisions about. It's Doquan allegedly like getting millions out of Terraform Labs and Terra before it collapses. It's the firm's, it's, uh, it's Chamath saying that yeah. he is selling his unvested tokens because he can and he got them at such a discount that it would be stupid for him not to and so like the people behind the projects and the people initially funding the projects are often going out with huge paydays and when these collapse and they very often do collapse oftentimes those same individuals will try to say that it was inevitable but they still have all their money and the people who were invested at the end are now ruined and when those people complain, they get told that, well, you knew this was an experiment. You knew this might not work out. We're trying to create the future of finance. Like sometimes things are going to go wrong and you should just accept that. And so like the people who are most often hurt get told often that their complaints are meaningless because of course this might fail. You didn't know this might fail. You thought that when we lied in our documentation and said you could always exchange this for $1 worth of Luna, you didn't know we were lying. How did you not know we were lying to you? And yeah, and so the people who end up hurt are the ones who are trying to use the products and own the products and invest into this future yeah. after the VCs have taken their share. That's it's, it's scary and I hope people... I, I hate to say do your own research, but I don't think it's enough. I think there's to me needs to be more proactive, uh, you know, people talking about this stuff. But yeah, it's, it always seems to be the people that, that, that probably couldn't afford to, to lose all that money that lose it. Um, so it's, it's sad. Um, awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today, Bennett. This was uh, super enlightening um, and uh, big fan of the podcast. Uh, where can people follow you uh, and keep up to date with your work? Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I You can find Crypto Critics Corner on YouTube or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I read a newsletter called The FUD Letter. You can find it at thefudletter.com. Nice. And I am on Twitter at Bennett Tomlin way more often than I should be or is good for me. <laughs> I think that's true for a lot of us. Thank you so much again. This was a super great conversation. Uh, have a good one.